0: This is The Urban Political.
1: The podcast on urban theory, research and activism.
0: Welcome to The Urban Political. This podcast is exploring the topic of urban hinterlands of slavery. My name is Ross Beveridge, and I'll hand you over to my colleague Marcus Kipp, who will introduce the guests.
2: We have uh, four guests, and I'm... Excited to introduce them to you very briefly uh, in the alphabetical order of their first names. Alan Rice is a professor in English and American Studies at the University of Central Lancashire, Preston, and a co-director of the Institute for Black Atlantic Research. And he is also a director of the University of Central Lancashire, Research Center in Migration, Diaspora, and Exile. Geraldine Onek is a qualified primary school teacher who has worked in some of the local Lancaster schools as well as in East London for seven years. In response to the Black Lives Matter protests in Lancaster last June, Geraldine has been involved in forming the Lancaster Black History, uh, a new grassroots community group of residents working to fight racism through education. Maimuna Salah is studying transnational literature at the University of Bremen. She is an activist at the Black Community Foundation Bremen, an association for Black people concerning self-empowerment and advocates for more racism, critical and decolonial education. And last but not least, uh, Sabine Brock is a professor emerita of English speaking cultures and transnational transcultural studies at the University of Bremen with focus on intersectionality, narrativity and slavery. Her research critiques the Mm. coloniality and structural anti-Black violence of transatlantic modernity as a social formation and culture of enslavism. And I'll hand it over to uh, Sabine, who has been instrumental in uh, conceptualizing uh, this episode, Um, and uh, Ross and I will uh, take a back seat and look forward to the uh, discussion that awaits us. Sabina.
3: Thank you for having us and for agreeing to do this mm. podcast. Um, yeah, I I should briefly say how this came about. Um, I myself have been studying slavery for many decades, actually. And so whilst I was doing this, I got more and more skeptical as to how can one study slavery in the Caribbean or in the United States without thinking about the slave trade that got the enslaved Africans to these places in the first place. Then I started looking at Britain's history and the history of British cities like Liverpool and Manchester that were quite directly and massively involved in slave trading and also making profits of the spoils of the slave trade. And then one time it just sort of hit me almost like um, a small political epiphany that Bremen uh, is sort of very proud of itself of being one of these very important overseas trade cities. And uh, until this day prides itself on its cosmopolitanism and its international um, connections to the United States and other places in the world. Um, And then I started digging as it were. And the first example I found was um, the history of the family of one Mr. Böse, uh, who made like a large fortune in sugar. And of course, sugar is a plantation spoils because it couldn't be produced at the time, um, minus uh, the labor of the enslaved in sugar plantations. And he, he is still sort of their street names after him. And he has a small castle that still is one of the main tourist attractions that come to Bremen. So. That all of a sudden opened a whole new venue for me of inquiry and I started a school project with um, school children, uh, like older high school children, 2011 until 2013, tracing the fabric of slavery in the city of Bremen. Um, And I can talk later about the things we found, but I'll pass it on to Maimuna for now. Oh, can I say one more thing? I mean, maybe what needs to be said at the outset is that all four of us and everybody who has been, you know, more or less directly involved in these activities, of course, starts from the assumption that slavery is not just one of the many bygone historical episodes concerning the U.S. or the Caribbean, but that European modern societies are have been sort of directly and massively impacted by the practices of overseas enslavement in many, many different ways. And so our work sort of feeds into this larger debate and critique of this development of mod- modernity and thus also modern cities. Yeah, Mona.
1: Yes, thank you so much. Um, I will dive directly in. So we at the Black Community Foundation Bremen um, had an argument last year with the Bremen Cotton Trade Organization, and it was about their promotion of the World Cotton Day. It was related as an image of a smiling, no-named black Tanzanian farmer holding a bunch of white and bright cotton in his arms, and it was attached to the organization's building, quite huge and quite For a long time hanging there in the city center and was reused from the year before. So several black people and of course also non-black people approached us and reported their outrage in this regard and the image was obviously quite aggressively offensive and racist. And then we contacted the cotton trade organization and indicated that when the cotton industry chooses a day to focus on the importance of this raw material, Um, it must be followed by a critical examination of the historical dimension of it and how this is significantly linked to the exploitation and enslavement of black people. And that the misuse of such an image is not only a stereotyped representation, but also a motive that reproduces racism. So we demand that the word Cotton Day would be no longer advertised with it, and that the organization in Bremen has the responsibility of reflecting this topic critically on an ongoing daily basis. And the answer that we received uh, was very unsatisfying and disappointing. Um, To sum it up, it started with a sentence. uh, We cannot understand your criticism. It's based on misunderstanding. So there was no official apology and they offered us to engage with them in a personal dialogue but uh, this is, this was nothing that we wanted to do so I think Bremen has a huge responsibility for taking care of the past when it comes to uh, the topic of enslavement which is not like something that happened in the past but linked to the contemporary issues of how we want to show or how we want to take a view on uh, history.
2: It's a good opportunity now for Geraldine and Ellen to um, introduce themselves and the work they have been doing.
4: Uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll start mainly because um, uh, just in terms of the work, I, I, I've I kind of am um, similar to uh, Sabina. In that I'm an academic that lives in a place, but an academic that lives in a place who thinks he just lives in a place and then finds out that the place has a lot to do with the things that he studies. So that thing was slavery and international transnational black cultures. And obviously I knew that uh, when I moved here, that Lancaster was a, a slave port, albeit a small one. But when I got here, I was absolutely shocked at the level of ignorance about that and the level of ignorance about what it meant so that people would say things like oh yes so lancaster was a slave port but oh you know in comparison to liverpool it was nothing really and and it was those liverpool merchants that were the really nasty ones but as soon as you do the smallest amount of research you find out that the city itself it's utterly based on and it, its wealth is utterly based on the economy of slavery so that the beautiful big houses around the uh, castle here in in lancaster uh, in the beautiful Georgian houses are, are mainly owned, were mainly owned by slave merchants. Now house after house you come across and uh, the riches come back to the town in a big way and the economy of the town, it's all built on slavery. So there's even a shipbuilding yard and many of the ships from that yard are, are slave ships. Lots of the ancillary trades are feed the slave trade so even there's um, hinterland far- farmers who are who are growing horse beans, and if you look at the growth of horse beans, suddenly there's they're making lots of money out of it. Well, it's being used for protein for the slaves, enslaved Africans, as they move uh, from Africa to the West Indies. So that you know, you know, some farmer in some kind of backwater just outside Lancaster is making money out of his horse beans that he never thought he'd make. That in this country. They'd be fed to horses. They wouldn't be as valuable. But, yeah, they can now be fed to enslaved Africans. I'll pass over to Geraldine, who's got some more specific stuff to say, I'm sure. So I'm
5: originally from South Sudan. Um, I came to Lancaster as a child refugee and I attended schools in Lancaster. And the slave trade, although it was a topic in our school curriculum, it wasn't taught explicitly. Um, using Lancaster as an example. And as Alan mentioned, this has only come um, to the forefront recently, and we are walking the streets, the names which are brandishing our streets are named after slave owners. And I think Lancaster's, na- Lancaster's naivety came from the fact we believe that our um, port and the River Loon was used for trading and we were using language like merchants so that straight away takes the ownership away Um, and it's only till recently um, as I said after the Black Lives Matter protest last year that we actually started to undig this hidden history um, amongst Lancaster Um, as a group we felt it was important that we addressed the way our collective history was told because currently it was only celebrating those who did wrong and erasing those who were deemed, you know, lesser than human. And as a black person, that obviously really resonates with me, you know, I'm a minority in Lancaster. Lancaster is a predominantly white city. So this is where we felt with Lancaster Black History Group. We really wanted to highlight the agency and the humanity of the black people um, you know, throughout history and bring it back to the local history because I think as mu- much as we know about black history in terms of America, um, very little is known in, re- in regards to England and specifically Lancaster. So as a group, we're trying to obviously use, utilize the skills and the knowledge of the members because we have um, people from the local community Academics, um, historians, and we try and create educational resources to kind of give the community some ownership, um, so they can see a different representation of history of Lancaster, and hopefully, our aim is to then they're more aware and that their mindset will also change.
2: We have already heard some of the accounts of uh, how the um, slavery has shaped the urban development in Bremen and Lancaster. Maybe you have a few more words to add on this and what kind of legacies this created for the present in uh, both cities?
3: I mean, I think it's important for the city of Bremen because that's one of the differences between Lancaster and Bremen was that it was very much a local actor because there was no Deutsches Reich at the time. I mean, And of course, they were not acting, you know, like, um, I mean, internationally as um, representatives of a national project as as much as, for example, British slave traders were involved in this kind of, you know, middle passage or triangular trade and, um, you know, re-import of colonial and and enslaved goods back to Britain. And so for Bremen, one of the reasons that it's always been there, but it's never acknowledged as a part of our history is that it's sort of um, it's almost like an absent presence or a present absence to quote Toni Morrison, because you see, there's the cotton exchange building, and you see that there's the overseas museum, and you see that the central station in Bremen has a, a, a huge mural that depicts all kinds of enslavist scenes, uh, including happy tobacco workers and happy cotton workers, and you know, the, the ships that transported the goods back to Bremen. But if you don't know that there's an actual connection to how people from the city and this city as a city was directly and indirectly involved in slave trading and enslavement in the Caribbean and the US, then you just walk by these things constantly. So it's interesting because the city has a topography that is very much in its central places built on this history, but it's not acknowledged as part of this history. Um and so I think um, the the visibility of the wealth is the same as in, in Lancaster, because of course the cotton exchange is a building that manifests the massive profits that Bremen merchants have been making with cotton like for decades and decades. Um, but what is what is different is that since Germany was not a major actor in slave trading on the national level, it's even more suppressed or more ignored, I think, in public memory. Ellen, would you agree? I mean, it's sort of a, diff- a slightly different angle that one has to come at this.
4: I mean, I do think that uh, there's a national story that's suppressed in Britain and has to be suppressed. In 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 terms has to be suppressed in terms of the, the you, know, the majority idea about empire and what it did. So we have this majority story about slavery and how that was very much in the past and how we were the best people at getting rid of it. So uh, the the story that's told often is abolitionism rather than slavery as a way of saying this. So yes, it's a it's more part of the national story slavery, but that doesn't make make it easier in some ways. In some ways. Um, what what happens is that whole narratives around the slave trade and the West Indies trade and and plantations is is distanced from Lancaster. Uh, So that, for instance, we imported these beautiful mahoganies and we have this um, uh, extremely famous company here called Gillows, Uh, probably after Chippendale, the second most famous um, furniture company in Britain, but because it's furniture, people associate um, slavery with um, cotton or sugar. But actually, mahogany, literally, the uh, slave trader Thomas Sawry exchanged 541 uh, planks of mahogany. He got back for 157 slaves in 1781. You know, so you literally have there in front of you, you know, that exchange happening. So that these hardwoods come over here they're made into beautiful furniture and they 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 then lose any connection with slavery because mahogany by now you have to literally tell most most um citizens that mahogany was a slave produced goods so so although yes i agree that um it's not as hidden in the national story there are ways in which they have managed to hide it by a kind of uh by different modes and and we have to spend a lot of our time uh in the wider group Lancaster Black History kind of saying look under your noses look at that beautiful um Rawlinson bookcase look how beautiful it is Rawlinson was a slave trader an MP a member of parliament you know he was a politician as well he fought against abolition he you know and he owned this um beautiful bookcase well the beautiful bookcase can tell you all you need to know that um that, that that uh about um the idea of um consumption of beautiful goods and the way in which however hard they might try to hide it we can find the slavery link that 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 is hidden far too often mm-hmm.
5: i think a lot of people if it's out of sight it's out of mind you know the plantations all happened in the West Indies. You know, um, there's very little. They didn't have to face it da- daily. They benefited from it in discreet ways. You know, sugar in their in their drinks and rum and things like that. So where we start seeing it is, yes, we contributed to. We were the first in in comparison to America to abolish slavery, but the in you know the industrial revolution shows that we were still using materials created by slaves and they were just being imported to our country used in our cotton mills so we were still exploiting them indirectly even after the slavery um, was abolished in um, britain
3: mm-hmm. i think it's important in germany i mean i don't know i think in britain there's this tradition of directly sort of always focusing on this abolitionist history that everybody was sort of proudly celebrating in 2007 without, you know, a word of the evils Um, all these British people um, committed. And and I think in Germany, that's even worse in a way because it's at this remove because like I said, Germany was not a slave uh, enslaved trading nation. So there's always been this really strong sentimentalist tradition of thinking about slavery like based on what people know from Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. So it's horrible, it's brutal, it's over-exploitation and it's all like a big ethical shame but it's completely disconnected from the real world of everybody. So when we start going at this with a different perspective then all of a sudden these things become visible in our cities and i think follow the object or follow the thing is one of the things that your work in lancaster and our work has in common so we followed the sugar to this castle that this guy you know built with the spoils of his uh, sugar import and you can you can follow like the tobacco money, you can follow the coffee money um, to the Caribbean and to Brazil and to Cuba. And so I think once you start getting away from this traditional narrative, this traditional sentimental sort of late abolitionist international narrative and focus on how the things appeared in the hinterlands, then you have all of a sudden you see things. And so one of the things that I think where research needs to go would be to be a lot more specific. So there's like one article out now by uh, a Bremen local historian, Horst Rössler, who talks about the, the various family histories of very well-known Bremen families, the family Vetjen, the family Gildemeister, the family Dukwitz, the family Fritze. And most of them are still, you know, the families still exist. And a lot of them are still engaged in some kind of form of overseas trading. Um, and they sort of continue that kind of history, but they have never been called out on this so maimuna maybe you could sort of take it from there in terms of the this kind of how do you go about if you want to take on the cotton exchange and actually get a response or see something because i think with the cotton exchange the work that you did and the article that i wrote for the german tuts really put sort of a finger into an open wound. But like, how do we go about pushing this?
1: Um, I believe that Bremen and especially the uh, cotton trade organization have treated black history and such as colonialism and especially topics like enslavement as an issue that happened to others. and. Morally in other colonized countries without connecting that the impact has had and has had and continues to have a great impact on the building local economic wealth. So if it's treated historically, then it's treated as others and not its own history. And this history is still extremely written out of a white perspective. So with making this parts of History Visible also comes the question who's going to take responsibility for it. And concerning the global um, or the cotton organization here in Bremen, I guess we should uh, have a conversation with them about, um, do you know that the story that you try to always um, turn into someone's other story is the story of your own company, of your own uh, organization? And yet, you need to make it clear to everyone that it's still something that is um, connected to your um, connected to your responsibility to to do. So, I'm not sure if it's going to work, but this would be one of my aims with the cotton trade organization here in Bremen.
3: So, this remains to be seen because that that kind of struggle is in process and. The school project we did is also something that was sort of finished in 2013 and then had some echo in the local press. But of course, it was sort of off everybody's radar immediately after we we stopped the project because the funding ran out. Um, so maybe Ellen and, and Geraldine, you could come back a little bit what kinds of experience you have had because you've been at this like massively and for some time in terms of really leaving some kind of impact on the city because I think that's what's you know looming before us in Bremen to leave some kind of impact
5: um the most recent example I can think of is when it was known that the Gillows family benefited from the slave trade um a known pub in Lancaster called the Robert Gillow um actually chose to rename themselves and um, they took ownership and um, they made it publicly known why they were changing the name because obviously once it's out once you're outed people are waiting to see the response you know as much as people could argue it's very performative, you know, they're doing it to get, to seem anti-racist. It's what what they do after that, you know, and there's been arguments by just erasing the name, changing the name, are we actually removing the history and why don't we turn it into a learning tool, you know, and an a- educational tool and in, when I come to this, I don't know which side I sit on because at the same time you could argue by keeping the name, it remains that this place was named after him. And then by simply erasing it, there's no, um, there's no notion that it ever existed. So it's, it's what you do with that information and how you use it after that.
4: Mm -hmm. I'll, 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 I'll just talk through that a bit more in terms of, the importance of this family to Lancaster's story of its wonders. You know, this is beautiful, beautiful furniture. It's a way of saying, you know, we did all this. And so then the naming of Robert cobb him is about that kind of civic pride. And what um, Lancaster, the Black Lives Matter did really, and the reason why they ever thought of changing the name was because we started demonstrating. Locally, it wasn't just there were national demonstrations, and Geraldine was at the heart of this. Just an incredible grassroots movement that had hundreds of people in our local square uh, taking the knee. Um, but then going on from that, uh, Geraldine and 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 ourselves and a few of us set up the Lancaster Black History Group, and, and through that we're involving the community. And actually, we have a project at the moment. Um, called the Slave Families Project, where there are seven different groups of people investigating seven different families as a means of getting to the bottom of all their connections, and 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 these groups are being being um, uh, helped with um, from historians and academics and other people, and and to do this to, to do this work, um, you know, so that in fact. What we're trying to do is make this not just an endeavour of the academics, not them just for, for the people to find their own lost histories in Lancaster, that this isn't just about historians coming in. It's about a group of people getting together and using the aid of historians, academic historians, but actually quite often bringing their own local knowledge in, which means they get to some truths which we weren't even thinking about before we started the work.
3: Yeah. Can I, can I pick up on, on, on this whole problematics of, you know, the, these performative or symbolic actions? Um, because I, I would totally agree that there are really important steps in just raising consciousness and making people aware of that something is wrong. So you could, Like, you know, when we wrote this article in the Tats about the Baumwollbörse, we also pointed to the two um, frescoes that are at the outside of the building. So they're like a very dominant visual image when you enter the German marketplace and, you know, walk over to the cotton exchange. Then you see these, you know, happy enslaved people sort of holding the harvest to um, the cotton exchange. So one could like paint them red or hang a poster right next to it and and, um, do this kind of performative uh, action against it. But what I'm interested in and Maimuna, we could actually think about like working towards like a Bremen black history group or something or a Bremen critical white history group for that matter, because When I read the article by Rosla again, I mean, I just want to give two examples, like the family was from Bremen and they were merchants, you know, like merchants, this harmless word in sugar, coffee and tobacco and made a fortune importing these things from the Caribbean and the U.S., um, To Bremen. So Bremen was the first city that accepted the first political entity, even that accepted uh, American independence as a political uh, fact. And um, in 1776 and celebrated and opened a consulate um, of the city in Philadelphia. So and then they also imported linen from, you know, the nearby city of Osnabrück. Uh, exported the linen back to the Caribbean and the U.S. to dress the slave in, you know, as cheap as a material as possible and made money with that again. And then they, part of the family had possessions in um, the Caribbean islands and later on they moved on to Cuba. So then this guy becomes the Consul General of Havana and is directly involved with the plantation, running the plantation economy as one of the planter elite uh, crew in Cuba. So, I mean, I could go on there at least like five or seven families that Rosla names in this article. And I think activist work would need to just call them out and ask them something that sort of hurts, as I keep saying, like, for example, do some kind of further research and then start demanding from these families and from the city to actually, for example, create a school book about these things that that becomes compulsory for Bremen schools or give money for at least, you know, like 10 Bremen fellowships every year to students from Africa to study here for free. Something where it really becomes a kind of you know, not reparation on a grand scale, but also more than just symbols. And I think as far as Bremen goes, we're, we, we are still like, we still have to do a lot of the research and maybe we can talk about the research further on, but we also are sort of on the cusp of needing that kind of activism
2: just curious if you could say something on the ongoing significance of or political influence economic influence of these families that you're referring to today and the in the lives of the your cities
3: well i mean i haven't really researched that in detail so i haven't gone into like the uh, the the party membership informations if that would be accessible at all of the conservative party in Bremen or I haven't checked the names of all the senators of the last hundred years like which family names would appear and reappear but I think in general one could say that you could actually make a list of names that are still part of the merchant elite of the city of Bremen and overseas um, trade is still one of the mainstays of Bremen's economy, but all of Bremen's, um, you know, wealth in that sense. Um, And also of Bremen's private wealth. I mean, talking about these beautiful houses, like probably one should like actually go through like these neighborhoods, Schwachhausen and other neighborhoods and check who owns these houses and, like, where does that money come from? That's something that hasn't been done. And I think part of the the difficulty that we have with this research is that when we applied for this funding for the school project to one major German, you know, educational foundation, Robert Bosch Stiftung, they eventually gave us the money because they thought it was sort of a worthwhile project, but we had a lot of difficulty getting past their, their uh, approval committee, because what they asked us was like, you cannot send these children to accuse like prominent Bremen families of this evil. And then probably you will be sued for slander. And I thought this is such a, I mean, it's, it's such a stupid response in a way, because of course we wouldn't go out and start telling lies. So everything that we actually do make public on a larger scale as a fact and not just as a suspicion or as a question would be researched. And then if you do that, then that's something that people have to deal with. So otherwise you could have never done research about Nazi Germany. But the same reflex that people had when like the first young academics began to do research on Nazi Germany is coming back to this anti-colonial and anti-enslavist research now.
4: So so for Lancaster, it's it's I mean, there are individual families. They put a lot of their money into the Industrial Revolution. And so I think about it, I'm I'm I, I think it's really important to name individuals, to think about individuals, but I think it's it's almost more important to think of these as city, cities that grow their wealth as cities, you know, and that's really what happens here because the wealth from slavery gets put into the canals and into the industrial, into the cotton mills, and then the cotton mills themselves are using um, slave-produced goods. Uh, so, you know, we, we can trace some of these families and we can trace their wealth to to now most of those families have moved away from lancaster um they've moved often to to greater cities bigger cities uh, where they they obviously are probably making more money but actually i think it's about the city wealth that i want to concentrate on mm-hmm. uh, uh because to an extent it, it's that why are why are there these beautiful buildings why do we have this wealth it's because it's been stolen and and that's been a not just an individual act the individuals are really important and uh but it's been an act of our um of of our communities and Mm -hmm. uh, you know and that's where that's where it lies it lies there and to, to kind of um uh Individualise it might well in the end start letting people off the hook at the beginning it puts people on the hook but eventually you let off all the people who were complicit in that because you sort of say oh this rich family well yes let's 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 make sure that we know that the wealth came from there and let's 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 talk about how awful that is but capitalism doesn't just work only through these it works through conglomerates of individuals and and people that um uh People that are complicit and and just watch this happen on their watch, you know, and, you know, or contributed in many different ways. You know, loads of aspects of the Lancaster economy just, you know, tied into uh, the super exploitation of people continents away and indeed super exploitation of people at home through the worst kinds of child labour and then also um, at home through the use of black servants, slave servants, which I can talk about later.
3: I mean, that's, that's, I totally agree. I think when I say, like, go for the money, as it were, and find these families in Bremen, which is like a very, you know, it's a city state. So it's a very small political um, unit. So, and, and, and the fact that, for example, this, this one family was, sort of a merchant family, but at the same time, you know, they led the consulate general in, I think it was Havana. So you, you immediately see how the state and the city apparatus was connected to this. But then of course you are right, because we could go into the, like the, the, the making of wealth of Bremen as a harbor city. The making of wealth of Bremen as a city that that built a very huge train station to 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 sort of bring things to the city to then be shipped internationally and overseas, and also to you know to receive the sugar and the coffee and the cotton and distribute it across you know you know what is today like the national um, area of Germany. Um, I think one of the things that that points to in terms of the research, but also in the activism is I think that we will need so many different people with their expertise. So you need like economic historians. And I think there's now like um, abolition and slavery has a special issue out on Europe and slavery. And it's, there's a lot of emphasis on what they call the, the the value chain or something of of slavery so like how the goods that came back created and recreated um wealth on so many levels and they also look to cities that haven't hitherto been so much looked at um so you need economic historians you need public historians you need family historians we don't at this point in bremen at least we don't even know like which archives will we be able to access? Because a lot of the stuff is in family archives, like for example, all the correspondences between the Bremen merchant families and their mostly sons that were distributed in, you know, Bordeaux, La Rochelle, Liverpool, the Caribbean, Philadelphia, and Cuba, because they had a lot of sons, so they could have their little global network of their own family like how do you get to this material with what kind of authority with what kind of sort of public interest behind you and then once you do get access to the archives i don't know about britain but in germany the next problem you'll have is that it's not indexed at all so you do you walk into the city archive of 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 bremen and you put in slavery in their search machines or card catalog, and you won't find it because officially Bremen had nothing to do with slavery. So you, you even have to spend a lot of, you know, mental energy and, and collective creativity to find out like how you even get to these facts that you can then start criticizing on a, on a broader basis, like what you said, Alice, uh, uh, Ellen, like how do you get to these facts that you can present to people with details, you know, about their, everybody's involvement and, and, you know, for everybody being a beneficiary of this history.
2: Great. Uh, do we want to move on to look at the current campaigns that you've all involved in and, Think about how you try to create an awareness to change the situation in sustainable ways um, in your respective contexts. So what's your methods, what's your methodologies to to achieve this kind of long lasting impact uh, beyond a media flurry or short lived scandal? And how do you deal uh, in that with the resistance of the uh, uh, city officials or, or city elites that you spoke of that are invested in the status quo?
3: Mona, do you want to go first? What would be your fantasy? Like what would you like to see Maybe that's the question because we we are not quite at this point where we can sort of spread out like a whole agenda, I think. But what would you like to see?
1: I would like to see a lot of more young people feeling empowered to make more structural changes and with more power to or more will to constantly disrupt the status quo by adding their own perspectives. And I think this is something that we are trying to do with the Black Community Foundation to encourage young people to get to know their own story and to um, yeah advocate for each other to, to make a statement inside the city, like you are earning the city, you are living here, and there's a history that you need to know. And if we want to change something, we have to teach it, but in a structural way. So I would like, well, my biggest wish is that the education will change. But it's, I know it's a really hard, uh, really hard aim.
3: Yeah. But I think, you know, since it could even work to, to, you know, to our advantage, because Bremen is like a small independent political entity. So we have our own, you know, school administration and university uh, academic administration, etc. So I think one could think of things like a campaign to create school material and make it obligatory. It's, that's not something that is sort of completely out of the question. It, the question is, I think, rather how would you, how would you go about sort of finding actors willing to engage in this beyond a very small group of organized, you know, black people in Bremen? And maybe Ellen or, or even Geraldine, because you've been so involved in this, maybe you could talk a little bit more about this process of winning people over that we could learn from.
5: I agree a bit, the education side. And what we found has been helpful is using social media, you know, presenting this information in a way that is, you can get the empathy, um, telling untold stories of slaves who lived in Lancaster. And that's where the engagement comes in because at the moment um, our own government are unwilling to acknowledge um, our colonial past. They're unwilling to make it statutory in the curriculum at primary level. Um, It was only last week it went to petition and the education secretary said um, that it was always, it's always up to the teacher, gave, gave the ownership on to the teacher. Whereas if this is not statutory, I think students are just going to accept what is written in their textbooks. We want them to become critical thinkers. We want them to challenge because at the end of the day, this is just one narrative and, you know, like the there's a Western um, African proverb which says, until the lion tells the story, the hunter will always be the hero. And, you know, we want to tell of the Black Agency where slaves did, you know, they fought against slavery um, and not just where Black Agency was of slaves and how, you know, we want to, I want to share those stories of the runaway slaves. And I think through projects like the... Alan has um, proposed like where we we celebrate these people um, and make them known in Lancaster through art through exhibitions um, utilizing the spaces in our area um, like the slave trail map for example is one way we're engaging the community um, this was commissioned by Alan um, a few years ago and he uh, rejigged it recently with updated information and it was through this that we realized there was scope for children to become involved where they could still access learning about their local history in a context which is not taught in school Um, and even educators and school teachers are um, utilizing our resources and making contact with us so we can support them because this is not in their curriculum there's no place for them to go and look on their lesson plans you know so all this is new to them and we're just trying to bridge that information and make it accessible
4: yeah uh, i I think that that the the, the project the blanks black history group just mushroomed completely and it mushroomed completely just because there was such a gap there was a gap black lives matters the the protests happened and there's a gap where is the information? Luckily, the trail, just few, few happenstance, was updated in June, and so it was there and ready. But the trail is new because it's got black agency in it. For you know, there's so many, um, the, the the you know, there's so difficult to get hold of those stories. But um, through the runaway slaves database, we now have knowledge of. Uh, of new black presences here in Lancaster. And one of them was an Ibu boy with scarification marks who spoke, speaks with a broad Lancashire dialect, and he runs away. You know, so he's got agency and he's running away from his owner, who's a clergyman. And that story can just energise a whole group of group of people who are used to hearing the story about anonymous slaves on slave ships, Uh, enslaved Africans on slave ships being 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 objects and just to just make just to be able to have them as subjects of their own story uh, just 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 makes for a whole new new aspect to this and means that we can we can we can make the link for black children here in Lancaster we can make the link to you know um black boy a black boy from 1764 who ran away a different black boy harry Hyde, who ran away in 1765 you know suddenly we have these stories but they they wouldn't be enough without a lancaster black history group which is taking kids on the trail and posting videos of those kids on the trail having a damn good time and an enjoyable time finding out these stories you know and i think that's that's the thing it's it's taking it away from the kind of dry world of of, of, of adults and making it live for for black school kids in Lancaster and, and all the other school kids in Lancaster, and that's just just been a um, you know a wonderful development.
3: <laughs> I'm a little envious. <laughs> um, I think our our difficulty and and you, my Mona, could could say something about this too. Is that I mean, we're really at this completely rudimentary level of gathering information. And I give you like one more example uh, that directly addresses, Ellen, what you said about the sort of missing Black agency in these public annals. So when we did the school project, we went to the city archive and some of the kids had a, a little conversation with the um, the head librarian, or whatever he's called, in the city archive, and told them about the project. And the guy goes, "Hmm, slavery, Bremen. Hmm, hmm. Well, I just, you know, remember we just sort of re-archived and reordered like this section about da da da. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think I'll find it for you. Uh, that there was a story about this runaway slave." So as it turns out, where he found it was in the the register for like a collection of documents concerning migration from the city of Bremen in the 20th century to the United States. But the document was from 1837 and was a letter from somebody working for the magistrate of Bremen successfully reporting that they had caught a runaway slave, like locked him up for weeks and found his owner, which I didn't, we don't even know how they did that, and sent him back, actually. So And so if like all these ifs and all these complete happenstance chain of things like if we hadn't gone to the archive that day and if we hadn't talked to that guy and if that guy hadn't remembered, we would never even know that the magistrate of the city of Bremen was sort of as a political body responsible for sending a slave back to Philadelphia in 1837 after Bremen had signed like the treaty for the suppression of the slave trade. And at a time when Bremen prided itself on being this like, you know, bastion of the Enlightenment era um, and, you know, of its worldliness and cosmopolitanness, So I'm expecting that like the work that we have to do, um, you know, in answer to the question of how do you impact on the cities would be, to just have figure out resources and time and energy to do a lot more systematic research and then come up with, you know, like these campaigns that Maimuna has uh, called for, like to change, you know, the change things like information on a very basic level on schools, but it pertains to universities as well. Maimuna, can you tell us about the seminar? (laughs) <laughs> to continue the story about the cotton exchange? Um,
1: yeah, there's going to be a cinema and it's called, or the title is called uh, Your Second Skin, The Cultural History of Cotton. And I was seeing that last week and I was a little bit upset or slightly angry because there was no critical word for the description for the seminar. And, um, it's going to be in some corporations with some museums here in Bremen. And, um, I don't know. Maybe it's a kind of a, maybe it's, it's possible to, for myself, to get inside the seminar and try to, to give more critical perspectives on it. Um, but the question is, how can we make such stories, as you mentioned, Sabina, from this, from this runaway uh, slave, I think his, his name was William Step, Stepney. Stepney. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how can we uh, try to make this as widely known as it should be? And for example, this seminar would be great to take this, um, his, this story of this, this guy and talk about it in a, in a way that it, it hasn't been done before. Mm-hmm. so maybe this would be one, one idea and I don't know for the future like the pandemic now condemns us to zoom and to do everything online but it also opens up some kind of opportunities for digital networking so maybe if we are trying to improve our transnational networking for more comprehensive information and education we can learn from each other especially between um, Lancaster and Bremen, for example, like an educational cross-city project or something. And um, to see how there are differences or even similarities within our cities and how we can empower each other and trade our resources and learning how the story of others is linked to to one's own.
0: I had a a question. I was was, was wondering if there were... uh... Uh, transnational links emerging between between cities, between movements in cities uh, in relation to this topic. Um, you know, in some sense, you know, Sabina talked about tracing uh, uh, slavery, the, the the past, the histories of uh, slavery in Bremen and other places. Uh, are there any attempts to do that internationally, obviously, or transnationally? given the, the relation of slavery to colonialism, imperialism, empire and industrialization. Um, and are there any other kind of examples of networks emerging?
3: Well, one example is what we're doing right now, <laughs> because, I mean, just because El and I have known each other for so long, this came relatively easy. Um, and I don't really know, I think that like Dutch activist groups in Amsterdam and other cities, they might have done like more, they might've gotten sort of more international audiences. And of course, Liverpool is probably linked to other cities. I mean, activists in Liverpool are probably linked to other cities. I know on the academic level, there are research networks about slavery and port cities um, there is also like a network of scholars now, as I said before, researching slavery in the hinterlands of Europe, but it's it's almost like, you know, the Germans say drops on a very hot stone. I mean, what would be the English? I don't know at this point. Um, I mean, it's so little given like these really enormous amounts of work that one could still do. But um, I like the idea that Maimuna just presented to to maybe start like it's not a network, but at least it would be a bilateral kind of cooperation.
4: That, that to me sounds like a great idea. This, um, you know, the, the you know, I think that the thing is that the larger um, slave port cities, Liverpool and Bristol. Um, you know, it's really important that we're in touch with them and all those kind of things. But but they'll have very different difficulties with getting their story out uh, than a place like Bremen or Lancaster does. You know, they the, you know that you know, and and so I think that similar cities could work really well together. And and, and the other thing I'd like to say really is that actually maybe um, when we're thinking about. This, we should think about goods as well as individuals in terms of trying to tell the stories of black agency. I know it sounds like a strange thing, but there are so, you know, if, if, Bremen really hasn't got, you know, we've found this one slave, there will be others enslaved Africans there. We yeah. have that many here. When you think about it, there's 845 slave advertisements on that website. Only five or six of them relate to Lancaster, which is quite small. So the way, um, I'm encouraged to do it might be through something like a beautiful Gillow's bookcase and the Gillow's family, sorry, that beautiful Gillow's uh, bookcase was owned by the Rawlinsons and they had a a, a slave, an Isaac Rawlinson, you know, so he would have, he was a house servant, would have stood by that beautiful bookshelf, which he wouldn't have access to. So maybe there are ways of, um, thinking about new displays new ways of displaying and thinking about objects as well as people and and making those links um away from lancaster to the caribbean so so what i suppose i'm trying to say is that i wouldn't despair that we don't and we want to get as many of these tales of black agency as we can out of the archives when the archives give us nothing there's always a silence which we can try and and be creative about filling with a voice which would have been there and could have been there and should have been and was there. Do you know what I mean that in in a sense, one of the things we have to do because of the absence in archives is to have new ways of thinking about um uh, about presence mm-hmm. or the absent mm-hmm. presence, as you said earlier mm-hmm. and you know and that's maybe one of the things which we're going forward with with um our portrait um, project in the judges lodgings where we're imagining what the runaways who came to Lancaster looked like and a black artist are going to do um, are going to do portraits of them uh, to put alongside the portraits of the slave merchants and to dialogise that whole debate, you know, that we've we've been putting up these portraits as though they, you know, they can tell the whole story and they don't tell any of the story without the story of, of the slavery that they, they, they were part of. So, yeah. you know, I've, sorry, <laughs> but I think, you know, the the idea of us combining w- would be great. And I'm sure Geraldine's got something she'd like to add on that, the combining between Lancaster and Roman.
5: Definitely, I think, you know, when we start this project, I think we wanted to collaborate with um, cities who could, understand you know our journey because it is a journey we're we're still discovering things daily Um, and yes we do face resistance you know not everyone is so forthcoming to the work we do you know there is worries about discovering um, links to family names who may still reside in Lancaster but I think the work we're doing it's going to you know do massive justice to the future like the future generations and there's that there's so much history to learn from each other
3: and when ellen said like we can sort of fill those gaps of of you know testimony um i'm reminded of you know tony morrison's work or other you know literary work and maybe that's one of the things um here in bremen also that we could think about sort of staging confrontations that are not really between um, you know existing actual um, survivors or but you could say for example you have you call out like you know one or two or three of these families or the Bremen senate or um, you know the the history of the Bremen consulates in the Caribbean and then sort of invent some kind of persona um, with a black perspective that ask these people questions, but do it by way of, you know art. I mean, not in terms of just writing academic articles or you know press releases, but um, And that could then be sort of taken around schools. Um, you know, if you could make, um, there's a theatre group that made a reading out of this Michael Stepney case with the little material that we have, but you could sort of expand on this, I think.
4: Geraldine's got a a story, really, she was, um, we have a a kind of story of a Black presence here, and which is in the trail, but Geraldine had a great idea of, of using a a drama group to to, to tell that story in a kind of walking tour? I'll just leave Geraldine to explain.
5: Yeah, I I said, like you said, Sabine, like um, sometimes we need to come from a different angle and I think it's got to be accessible to everyone. And so an idea was, why don't we, if we're doing walking trails, why don't we bring the theatre to those who come on these trails. So by um, hiring local actors to retell the story of Francis Elizabeth um, Johnson, um, you know, and these places are on the trail map. So by taking them on, you're then utilising the map and educating um, through art. So this is one, one of the projects that we've actually put funding in for. And we're lucky in the sense that I think the local community and the council are very supportive of our work. Um, even the, the trail map for the children's um, version, that came from funding from the council um, because I think they also too want to acknowledge um, Lancaster's history. Um, they've even looked in-house, you know, the, the portraits and the furniture they have in the town hall. They started to question how should we um, acknowledge this? You know, are we going to... In- Include plaques, which when people do come to the town hall, they're aware of these portraits of um, slave owners, and the furniture that is um, in our building was created by slave owners. So yeah,
3: definitely. You know, I think what what emerges in the last few years, because this tracing the fabric of slavery is, is very minoritarian, I think at this point, because a lot of the decolonial work that has evolved over the last 15 years is very much concerned with sort of colonialism proper. I mean, at least in Germany, it very much deals with, you know, the 19th century and finally acknowledging Germany's role in the colonies, which then comes very late in history. And thus the whole notion of transatlantic slave trade and enslavement um, in the new world, again sort of falls through the cracks or off the table. Um, But I think these kinds of ideas that have emerged in that context point to something very interesting for academics and they are also transferable. when you say, for example, theater groups and schools or walking trails, there is also a walking trail in Bremen to um, sort of you know, take tourists to um, these buildings that were part of the colonial history of Bremen, for example, the overseas museum and other forms of kind of mobile research and learning. And I think that's going to be a challenge it's, that's kind of a struggle in itself, because it will be a challenge against traditional academic forms of research, because they make research a lot more, um, not just accessible, but proactive, like you have to move away from the state system of the archives as we have it to even find these things, and then you have to move out of the classroom to disseminate them. You cannot work within disciplines because they they shut down questions. Um, Like if you deal with economic history, then you don't get like the psychological impact of enslavement on both sides, by the way, enslavers and enslaved people. And then you cannot go by these traditional divisions of local history, regional history, national history, international history, because you start thinking about transatlantic enslavement. Like Alan says, like these bean growers in, you know, some villages outside of Bremen are making money from this or uh, porcelain beads are being sold from Böhmen through the Harbor of Bremen into Africa because they serve as payment for slaves or, you know, Africans made into slaves. And so all these distinctions that the academic system has erected to keep like white knowledge safe, I would say, begin to crumble once you start asking these questions. And I think that's not just a precondition for struggle. That is part of the struggle. I don't know if you agree, but I think you know because
4: these things are so buried. I think Sabina's really right that it needs a a really a real focus from many many disciplines and, and the, the, the the problem can be that if it's only if we leave this just to um, just even if we just leave it to historians they they'll they would say at this moment you haven't got the evidence to make the claims you're making about this, this particular, say, uh, uh, enslaved African uh, in Lancaster. Well, we don't, but we never will have. We never will have. All we have is a name in a baptismal register, but we can use our imaginations to try and make something of that life. And that's surely really important. And the imagination isn't just coming from nothing; it's coming from a deep knowledge of the the black experience or slavery, depending on who's 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 working on this. So there, there comes a point where, if you start saying, you know, we we can't say something because we don't know everything, you end up saying nothing. And and the really important thing here is that we need this history to be out there. And there's so many of the historical facts we do know. I have a trail here, which I developed, which has 22 sites in Lancaster. I could have put 30 or 40. It takes about three hours to go round it, but you'll have again and again a fact and a person and a fact and a person. You know, um, but the, the facts about the white people there uh, are, are, if you like, one fact out of hundreds of thousands in the archives, Often the fact about the black people there is the only fact about their whole life that we have access to. And it's just so important that we don't make that a barrier to making history work for those black people as well as for those white people. And, um, you know, and I'm so, so proud because this trail is now on the Visit Lancashire website website on the first page of their maps. So you get a map of the city and virtually the next map you get is a map of the slave trail. And what that means is that people are going to download it, you know, because it's not hidden on page 36 of their maps and they've got loads of maps. You know, it's right up there. And that was a, a council decision. So hopefully their histories will, will get out there more. Amen.
3: <laughs> My Muna, would you would you come back to that do you see like a potential in Bremen like within your group but also like you know with other actors that would would enable us to to create this kind of pressure group quote unquote
1: um yes I would say I can see the potential and I also would like to agree with Alan to take um the stories that you might find and or the names and identities that you that you might find on the research and take it up in an artistic or even in a fictionalized way just to give some identities a background and a story and a commemorate. Um so there is a lot of potential to for the for the way we want to raise awareness and how we want to, to let history been told in the society. And I have a lot of um, trust in our society for this, for this concern, yeah.
3: More power to you. (laughs) I'm not so sure about my trust, but (laughs) might be an age question. let's say it's hope it's hope 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 is good (laughs) hope Ellen is good isn't
4: it yeah indeed yes indeed and it's kind of and I just at this point really to have Lancashire Back History Group starting last year and for it to have done so much already under you know the initiative of, of of Geraldine just means that my work you know which are you know in in getting together bringing forward these histories just means that it has the context which it's been looking for and it's just such an exciting moment I think I quite like um Geraldine maybe to to just kind of just just have a last word on that on what the plans are maybe um
5: I don't think any of us could have predicted how well um, our group would have been received um, locally, even globally. We've got people in America contacting us. And as long as people are interested, we're here to share our knowledge because I think what we want to do is learn from the past and, you know, talk about um, the injustices that those black agency um, experience, especially with, you know, the whole George Floyd killing last year to show that racism is still an issue even today. Um, and I think it's making those links like it has it has to have an impact. Why are we learning about that? You know, it's got to show its relevance into today's society. Um, and that's what we're trying to do, you know, and involve the community wherever possible, because this can't be done um, on our own and community Involvement is essential in every aspect, you know, from consultation through to execution. Um, And I think, you know, discussions like this need to happen because I I feel this is not just, you know, sometimes you can forget in our small town of Lancaster that this same, um, you know, this activism is happening globally. um, And it's it's so rewarding to know that, we're not alone in our fight to um, get these stories told.
3: I, I wanted to add to this with respect to, you know, the title of this podcast series and like, because I know a lot of people who do urban studies and it seems like sort of a telling fact to me that like i i told it, my friend roger who's in urban studies about like that we're doing this today and then he says he wishes he is he would be like an urban historian you know to be better able to take part in these debates and i think one of the things that just became clear to me when we were preparing this is that i think part of the problem with enslavement in particular it it has been sort of ruralized as it were it has been made a problem of rural areas with huge plantations that happened in the United States and that happened in Britain because then it becomes a question of the big harbor cities but the big harbor cities act as if they don't have any kind of rural hinterland or a small town hinterland so It's, I think if you bring the history of transatlantic enslavement and slavery to urban studies, it all of a sudden means that urban studies gets to be historicized in a certain way, but not in this positivist way that we're asking, like, um, you know, we're amassing more topographical features or, you know, I don't know, like recent sociological structures of cities or, so I think there's this kind of presentist tendency in urban studies, which might have to do with sort of the history of the field, I don't know. But it seems like if you really want to talk about cities and that goes for European cities, almost all of them, it goes for cities like New York, who that for the longest time didn't think they were connected to slavery at all. It goes for Boston you know, it goes for huge African cities, which nobody has looked at yet, I think. Immediately you have to, you, you get sort of to have another angle on urban studies. And that's what I found really exciting about, you know, doing this podcast with you, because in my mind, these two were completely different fields. Like, okay, there was urban studies and I talked to my friend Roger about all these contemporary problems of cities and then there was my slavery thing you know like my study of slavery and never shall these two meet and now that they have met i think it's really it also opens up new venues of who to get into this you know like like what geraldine said like people who are interested in their city in terms of you know they want this to be a place that they can inhabit that has made good for their history or at least acknowledged it. I don't know if that is clear at all, but I was thinking while I was going. So,
2: Thank you, Sabine. That was very clear. Um, This was uh, a truly deep and very engaging conversation for me. I I learned a lot and I would really uh, like to say a big thank you Alan, Geraldine, Maimuna and Sabine Thanks to you for listening For more information visit our website urbanpolitical.polyg.io
1: Please subscribe and
3: follow us on Twitter